Hey, I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute, and you're listening to Financing Nature from GFI Hive. Today, I'm joined by Zach Knight, co-founder and managing partner of Blue Forest Conservation to talk about the incredible Forest Resilience Bond. We're not a science company. We're not an engineering company. We're not a finance company. We are in the relationship business. Building relationships and building trust is the most important thing we do at Blue Forest. Anytime we're in in this world of dealing with money and public lands, that needs to be the most important thing. And I think one of the ways we did it, a couple of things we don't always do well in finance is listen. But also, if you can treat your stakeholders the same way you treat your investors, um, I think you're going to end up with much, much better outcomes uh, when everything is, is said and done. Hello, and thank you for joining me today. Are you ready to nerd out? I am. I am so excited to be joined by Zach Knight today. Zach is co-founder and managing partner of Blue Forest Conservation that developed the Forest Resilience Bond. It's an investment in interventions in forests out on the west coast of the U.S., to improve fire resiliency. Um, But it also has other outcomes such as clean water and biodiversity, in addition to job creation and other social benefits. It's a gem of an investment, a really fascinating structure. And Zach and the team are scaling it up and also seeing how you can replicate it for other outcomes. So lots to discuss today. Let's get Zach in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zach. Firstly, how are you? How's California? Uh, Well, it's uh, warming up a little bit here, but we still need rain. We had an epic December for precipitation and everyone thought that was going to bring us out of the drought. But unfortunately, it's been really dry the last two months. So I love the warm weather. Spring is here. We need just a little bit more rain. Oh, goodness. We can have have some of ours. (laughs) Can't say that to someone in London, right? Like it's <laughs> no. uh, very. <laughs> but um, it's very apt that we're, you know, talking about drought and and we'll, we'll get on to sort of fire risk in a moment. But I'm really excited to talk to you about the Forest Resilience Bond today. Before we get to all that, um, I'd just really love if you could share with us about Blue Forest uh, Conservation, how it came about, because I think it's a fascinating and really inspiring story in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had a really interesting journey. And it actually started in London, if you can believe it. Um, It was myself and three classmates from UC Berkeley who had entered a competition that Morgan Stanley and Kellogg uh, were running. And it happened to be based in London the year that we were fortunate enough to be finalists and ultimately win the competition. And uh, Blue Forest is one of those kind of few examples you might see of the business school project or competition that kind of breaks through and goes on because the next step for us was getting to present our work at the Milken Institute Global Conference where we had access to investors that really helped us understand what this opportunity was for nature-based solutions before everybody was using this terminology um, as we see much more frequently today, right? So you're a group of students who come up with this idea, then you win the Morgan Stanley Kellogg award. Was Blue Forest also really set up or did it sort of emerge from that competition? No, this is a, it's a great question. And it is the sustainable investing challenge. Thank I feel you. the need to plug that. It's something I've spent quite a bit of time with afterwards. And it's such a great competition. It's such an interesting way to bring up these ideas. And for folks that don't know much about it, the idea here is to create um, an institutionally investable product that furthers sustainability really in any way whatsoever. But that key focus is something that institutional investors could potentially uh, take part in from that perspective. Um, So when we started Blue Forest, we've had an interesting um, 
sort of history, we actually started as a for-profit organization um, back in 2015. Although I would say all of our funding was uh, grant funding uh, from US-based uh, foundations, even as a, a for-profit when we started. Um, as we've transitioned to a nonprofit, and I'll talk about that in a moment, I think it is important to talk about where funding comes from. And I'd say we're about a 50-50 split between uh, private foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation has been a really big supporter with their zero gap portfolio. Um, and then on the federal side, uh, we do receive a lot of support from the Department of Agriculture, which manages the Forest Service, um, also the EPA, uh, which I think has also helped verifying or validating uh, the importance of, of some of this work that we're doing here. Um, but we started as a for-profit because we said, you know, the way to change, uh, to make the change we need to see is by bringing in private investment. And that's always done by for-profits, right? right? And I don't think there was anything to question that, that mentality um, when we got started. What we realized pretty quickly, though, was in, in our work with federal and state partners, they were much more comfortable. And frankly, the legal structures existed to partner with nonprofits in a different way. Could it be good to have a nonprofit sitting between the public sector and those eventual investors? And I think that's something we can talk uh, more about uh, as we get into this discussion as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't realized that initially that you were a for-profit. Um, so well, let's yeah. just dive in then, because people may be asking, well, hang on a minute, what what do Blue Forest do? <laughs> and what's a forest resilience bond? So so let's get let's get on to that. And I'd really welcome just walking through it really slowly. So the initial product is this forest resilience bond. Tell us what problem initially it was it was solving for. Yeah, I wanted to I want to start there and I want to talk about the actual ecological challenges that we face um, in California and really across the Western US and then in other parts of the world, but our focus is really on the Western US. So um, for thousands and thousands of years, we had healthy, vibrant forests that were managed by the indigenous communities. And a big part of that forest management, especially in a range like the Sierra Nevada, for example, here in California, is fire. We would expect to see fire come through these forests maybe every 10 to, to 30 years or so. And, and the tribes knew if that didn't happen, they would start that fire themselves and do it in a healthy uh, and controlled way. Fast forward to the late 1800s, early 1900s, the Forest Service, in, as it got started as a federal agency, was really an economic growth engine, um, really supportive of building the railroads. We needed wood for that. There's a lot of mining activity, gold rush, uh, as you know, out in California. And wood built that, right? And at one point, we would look at the forest and say, each one of those trees is taxpayer dollars, and we need to protect it from fire. And I think some of the fire science obviously wasn't, you know, 70, 80, 100 years ago isn't where it is today. And it really has evolved as a field. And it's been pretty incredible to see. And what happened was we now have forests that hold 10 to 20 times as many trees per acre as would be naturally occurring. Wow. And many of those trees are much, much smaller trees. And, and the challenge here is that we've lost the heterogeneity in these forests, which just means um, differences in species, we ended up with really even aged trees because we cut a lot of them down for those timber, you replant them too close together, there's too many of them in there. And what happens is when a fire starts, uh, even what would be a healthy or natural fire, um, it climbs up these smaller trees and they call them ladder fuels. And, and as you would imagine, the fire climbs that ladder and actually gets into the larger trees, which sequester more carbon, provide more habitat, hold these watersheds together. But those ladder fuels and those smaller trees cause these fires to go from a natural ground fire to something that becomes a crown fire. And it's much more 
expensive and challenging to contain. It moves much more quickly because it's subject to winds. Um, so that is an overview of the challenge that we face today. And, and it's pretty obvious when you see that density and you combine it with an increasingly hotter and drier climate, you're going to get these fire seasons that we saw in 2021 and 2020. But also remember, 2018 was the deadliest fire season um, in California's history. 2017 was the most expensive before the last two. 2015 set the record for most acres. So what you see here is a trend and not an anomaly. Mm -hmm. The good news here is that we actually know how to solve this problem. There's been decades and decades of research on ecological restoration, bringing these forests back to a natural density, but also making sure that meadow systems and riparian systems are restored also so that function exists throughout. And that's a really important part of what we analyze at Blue Forest. We don't plan these projects. They're planned by the federal land managers that, that oversee this land, but we analyze what those impacts could have to the project and how that might benefit downstream. So we know what to do. The, the big challenge has been there isn't enough money to do it. Um, prior to the recent bipartisan infrastructure funding here in the U.S., which will make about $3 billion available to the Forest Service, they'd get half a billion dollars a year with more and more of that, you know, obviously spent on firefighting. Well, according to the agency, it's about an $80 billion problem. So just think about wow. that for a second. Wow. Even, prior, even with this additional, you know, massive additional infrastructure funding that is going to go a long way to, to solving these problems, it goes to show you at the end of the day, this isn't a science problem. It's a finance problem, right? I mean, we need this treatment done yesterday um, so that when the fires come and they will, and we expect there to still be fire activity, those fires are healthy ground fires as opposed to large damaging fires, which is what we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of in the last couple of years. So there are certain interventions one can make in a forest to reduce fire risk that also has um, more benefits than fire risk mitigation alone. Am I right? Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about what you'll see as treatments in these projects. And then I'll talk a little bit about the benefits, because I think what you're what you're getting at here, Helen, is the most important part of everything we do at Blue Forest is acknowledging that while these projects are designed to restore ecological function for our public lands, by doing that, all these additional benefits besides just fire risk reduction are created. So in a typical restoration project, you will see um, hand and mechanical thinning, which means going in with axes and chainsaws are actually using machinery to take out smaller diameter trees. Those need to be cut before fire can actually be reintroduced um, on the ground. And that's the most important piece of these projects, actually putting fire in what's known as a prescribed fire controlled burn or broadcast burn onto the ground to make these landscapes more resilient to fire when it does eventually come to them, which which it will in a, in a range like this here in Nevada. But you have to do that fitting work first, or it's not safe to put that fire in the ground. So these are smaller diameter trees, 10, 12 inch, something of that. Trees that are so small, there's no timber market for them. Um, often if there's a timber market there, you know, the Forest Service can do a timber sale. That's not something they need Blue Forest's uh, help with necessarily. What we focus on are what's called service work items, items that don't pay for themselves. So those are the two biggest elements that you'll see in these projects. Um, thinking about our projects on the Tahoe National Forest, it's also an area where aspen, deciduous trees like aspen, have been pushed out by conifers, uh, pine trees, uh, that grow quite a bit faster. So there's restoration of the native aspen spans, and there's a lot of meadow restoration. But also these meadows function as high elevation um, sponges where they hold in clean water. And, and actually in a place like California where drought is the norm, having more water available in August 
versus April has a huge economic impact. And that's not even considering the biodiversity impact of having these sort of healthy functioning meadows, right? So that's a little bit about what you'd see in the projects. Other things might be decommissioning of old logging roads. Here in the U.S., we actually have more logging roads running through our forests than our whole interstate highway system. Wow. Isn't it? It's a crazy statistic, right? Um, And when you have these old roads and they haven't been taken care of because there was logging that happened 20 or 30 years ago, when you have a fire and then rain on a fire event, a lot of that can wash out and end up as sediment in a reservoir that can create a lot of costs or damages or challenges for downstream utilities that manage a a reservoir for drinking water or hydropower generation or or both. So I think I've touched on some of the benefits, but maybe just listing them out, Helen, for for the audience. I mean, first and foremost, reducing the risk of catastrophic wildfire, um, which has a lot of negative outcomes associated with it. The destruction of these places, these are our public lands, Um, but also carbon emissions. Um, And in fact, in 2020, Forests in California, which really are our best carbon sink from a natural capital standpoint, were not only not uh, sinking carbon, they were net emitters of carbon and actually emitted more carbon than the entire transportation sector for the state of California. I think it was about 100 million metric tons. Um, The other thing which I've touched around is water. Um, In a place like California, uh, where drought is the norm, um, about 60 to 65 percent of the developed water supply in California actually comes from snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. And that supports uh, places like Sacramento, where I live. But that water actually makes its way all the way down to Los Angeles. So if we have an opportunity to protect that source water, that's incredibly important. In certain parts of the Sierra Nevada, you could even see an increase in, in water yields from doing some of these Uh, thinning treatments. And that's something scientifically that we've focused on and spent a lot of time on at Blue Forest and with um, a number of academic partners. Wow. Okay. Goodness. That's really interesting on the water side. Yeah. So sort of moving along towards, you know, starting to get towards the structure of the deal, you identified Mm -hmm. two beneficiaries that might pay for some of those benefits you just talked about. Can you talk us through those two, what they were buying? Yep. And, and really, it's it's three that I think we oh, should, should call out here. Yeah, no, all, all good. Um, so the first and foremost is, is the U.S. Forest Service, which is at the federal level, with a lot of input, frankly, from the local community. So they're an incredibly important part of this project. And they're actually a development partner. We work directly with the U.S. Forest Service to figure out how the financing can work, because here in the U.S. And, and likely other places, you can't just lend money to a government agency either. So they had to be a big part of structuring what this would look like and how it would work. So the federal government, um, the next is the state government in California. There is uh, a department called the Department of Forestry and Fire Protection called CAL FIRE. There's also a number of different state agencies that roll up under the Natural Resources Agency. There's conservancies, for example, among others. And those groups are key funders of the actual implementation on the ground of these projects. And when we started Blue Forest, just to have you thinking about all the numbers here, the state of California did about $20 million a year um, in forest health grant treatments, which were significant, more than any other state across the Western U.S. Well, before Governor Newsom came in, Governor Brown, the prior governor here in California, committed to a billion dollars over five years, so $200 million a year um, in funding for this. Um, Governor Newsom's gone even beyond that. I think they made an additional billion and a half dollars available in addition to that $200 million a year. So the funding for this has increased dramatically, which is exciting, but it also creates challenges. Hmm. The state puts all this funding out in the form of competitive grants. Challenges that when you do the work, 
you have to give an invoice to the state and it takes about six months to get reimbursed from that standpoint. And it makes sense. The government can't just hand you money and like hope you do the good work that you're going to do. They want to see it. They want to check. They want to make sure it's done right. And then money comes out the door. And this is actually one of the key um, things that we're solving for at Blue Forest with the Forest Resilience Fund is the working capital issue. And I say working capital a lot in sort of these um, state government meetings. And people look at me like I have three heads because the concept of working capital doesn't really exist in government, right? You're budgeted the funds, you have the funds, you can spend the funds, you have the authority. That's not how it works for nonprofits and tribes and resource conservation districts that are on the ground implementing these projects. They need to pay the contractors or you only hire the bigger contractors that come in from out of state that they're okay not getting paid for six months. They might charge a little bit more, but they run a big operation. And what we want to see here in California is hiring more local folks to do this work because Unemployment in these rural areas, even before COVID, was pretty high. So the state plays another role in this. And then last but not least is the water agency, the Yuba Water Agency that we're working with. Um, And I call all three of those out because those are all three entities that would benefit from a forest resilience bond. And in other projects, that could be three different entities. I think we got lucky in this case that they were interested in this project and they understood those benefits and they wanted to support it. So looking back on this, this really is truly a public-private partnership and that you have all levels of government. You have the federal government, the state government, and then county government uh, that's involved in this. Correct me if I'm wrong. So is it a mix of buyers and grants in there where the water agency is a buyer? In in a way they are. They're, They're making fixed payments. And I think this is an interesting thing. When we started this, everyone assumed all the payments into this would be pay for success based. We found out really quickly at the federal level that that wasn't going to work for a whole bunch of different reasons. It doesn't really make sense to do pay for success on like an output basis. That's just paying for outputs, right? right? So what we found both from the water agency in this case and from the investors is that they both preferred more stable cash flows. And it's the perfect type of commitment to fit into a financing like this. Because again, those benefits will exist for them for 10 years, maybe more than 10 years, but let's bring all that value forward today so we can get this work done quite a bit faster, right? Right. So it's putting together those state grants that have that working capital issue I talked about, where it's really like receivables, Mm -hmm. financing or factoring or bridge financing more, plus putting together that other commitment for the water agency and bringing some of that forward. And we do all of it in just a project financing vehicle. So um, what that allows us to do at at the most simple level is to be a catcher's mitt of all these different funding sources um, so that it goes into that vehicle, it's accountable, it's transparent to where the money's being spent, and then it gets out on the ground through critical partners like the National Forest Foundation, who are actually chosen by the Forest Service to manage these projects on the ground. We sort of brought conservation finance to something they were already doing and it worked really well. Not for the least of the reason is you can't lend money to a federal agency, but you can to their nonprofit, tribal, county, uh, other types of partner organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So it was one of these things where there was a lot of serendipity in that, that we saw that was kind of a non-financial, but really important operational shift that was happening that actually made this financing work in a more fluid way. Right. Well, so I just wanted to talk about the structure, if you will. I know there's yeah. there's a lot happening in there with some different other stakeholders and investors. So can you talk us through that? Yeah. So I think the, the best way to, to look at these structures is to say, 
what already exists in the investment world and what does this look like? Mm-hmm. And, and what it looks like is real estate finance or um, infrastructure project finance. So for every project that we work on, we set up a, a special purpose vehicle. Um, again, very common in, in both those cases. It would be in our case, an LLC that's based in California, and that's a wholly owned subsidiary of our nonprofit. Those entities are also bankruptcy remote. So we do all the lending, borrowing, granting activity at that subsidiary level. And all of our lenders sign a loan agreement with that entity, Mm -hmm. right? Interestingly, we don't borrow all that money at once. It doesn't make sense actually to borrow all that money once because we can't spend it all at once. We can spend it a lot faster than the 10-year commitments we might have as part of the project, but things in these projects have to be done in sequence. What gives us access to that money from those investors who are lenders who sign loan agreements um, is I show them forms of repayment that are going to come through this structure. Uh, Repayment milestones is a term that we've used. So it could be federal funding, like fire settlement funding that's reimbursable in nature, where again, you have to spend that money, they have to see the work's done, and then they can reimburse. We'll help whomever is managing the project get over that working capital issue and give them full access to the commitment from the utility partner as well. So the utility partner would sign a contract with that special purpose vehicle. In our second project, um, we'll have corporate partners that also want to see water replenishment outcomes sign a contract. And then that vehicle can provide funding in the form of a 0% interest rate loan to that implementation partner. It's the National Forest Foundation, and they are the congressionally chartered nonprofit partner of the U.S. Forest Service. And there's probably, you know, 20 or 30 organizations nationally that have really good high capacity in these different areas that can do this work. So it's not just them, but they've really been the partner that has helped us figure out how how all of this would work, right? So if they have federal or state commitments, we lend against those at a 0% interest rate. And that's really important because on a statutory basis, that money coming from the state and federal government can't be used to pay interest. We want to give them full financial flexibility to pay contractors immediately. We don't want them worrying about the cost of interest in these things. We want the work yeah. you know, happening on the ground. Um, we can also grant them funds that are contracted and coming in the future. And it ends up being more flexible so they can say, hey, we don't want to have to put all these small trees in a pile and burn them and have this bad carbon outcome. Could we pay a little bit more to have a chipper come in and put them on a chip truck and take them out somewhere else, hey, that's a better carbon outcome. That's something that we want to pay for. And especially the water agency, they want to see that happen too. They're incentivized by that. What ultimately allows us to do that is that we can use that money that comes in through the contract to pay interest and fees, and it, which are quite low. You know, The first project, the fees are $30,000 a year for a multi $4 million financing. And that's just to cover the cost of an audit and an impact report. Um, And we do audit all the financial vehicles. And I think that really helps. Investors expect that. But actually, the stakeholders want to see that, too, because they want to see where's my money going? This, you know, we're working on a project up in Oregon, too. This water agency in California doesn't want their contributions going to a project up in Oregon. So having these special purpose vehicles for each project, it's really important. And it's not just for the reasons you expect that investors would push you to do it, but the stakeholders, uh, I think, want to see that as well. Yeah. Actually, just as an aside, we hosted a teach-in today on um, SPVs and the role of them in nature-based finance. So (laughs) I'll I'll point to that later. So hopefully those listening will be familiar with SPVs. Um, I just want to talk about the investors. If you could sort of share what Mm -hmm. type of investor are they? And I know it's called a forest resilience bond, but is it really a bond? 
Yeah, so I think we're sort of stealing bond from British English. You know, obviously the social impact bond was created over in the, the UK and, and many of those structures actually are not bonds. Yeah. They're, they're structured as loan, but I think bond is just the you know, term for contract, right? So we're very much using bond in that way. And you're right, these are loans, which is really important from a financial structuring standpoint because it does two things for us. It, it allows us to be more efficient with capital because we don't need to draw all that money at once. It gives us access to the money when we need to pay contractors and do other things. But that also reduces our risk to our lenders, right? We're not sitting on all the money. A bad outcome would be the whole project burning down in this case. And investors would be really anxious if we're sitting on all their money in that case. Mm. So we've been able to, through the structure, actually take out a lot of the risks that would otherwise be hard to mitigate from an investor perspective. Um, in terms of the investors, I think our investors break down into, into four groups. I'm going to start with foundations and concessional investors first, because we do employ a blended capital structure. Foundation support has been enormously important for Blue Forest. It's allowed us to figure out how to do this and to start to build a team that can then develop more projects so investors have more to invest in in the future. In addition to that, here in the United States, as part of the tax code, those organizations can also make what's known as a program-related investment. And that counts towards the 5% that they need to pay out in administrative and grant making, but they get the money back and the impact from the project, and then they can give the money out uh, again. So it's a really high impact tool for foundations. And that's how we work mm -hmm. with foundations. Um, the other three buckets I think are, are interesting to dig into um, is insurance companies. So we're interested in investors where we can work with them, but really learn from them as well. I certainly was not an expert in insurance and still am not, but learning a lot. And, and they, they are more than an investor. They're a stakeholder, uh, I think, mm -hmm. in some ways in this whole ecosystem. And I would argue that most of these structures, because you're trying to call out cash flows from natural capital, are going to lend themselves to this sort of project financing, fixed income yeah, yeah. nature. And when you look at the interest rate environment in the world, we're really coming off historical lows. It's never going to be cheaper than right now to do this work also, not just because the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago <laughs> and the second best time is today. But I just mean from like purely an interest rate standpoint, uh, I, I think it's uh, <laughs> as those increase, it's just going to be more and more expensive to do some of this work. So I see insurance investors as uh, key partners. The next group for us is donor advised funds. Yeah. Um, so this is um, for folks that are less familiar. Uh, if I was the founder of a you know, wildly successful technology company went public, I could either pay a bunch of taxes or maybe I could donate some shares to a donor advised fund uh, to offset my tax liability. And then that money sits with a donor advised fund for the rest of my life and I can direct it to whatever causes uh, that I want to do. And, and it's a huge sector here in the States. I mean, there's, I believe, hundreds of billions of dollars sitting in donor advised funds. We can activate it two ways. One, they can obviously make grants to support organizations like Blue Forest or other nonprofits doing great work in this space. But also, while that money is sitting there and waiting to be granted out to do something impactful, let's do something impactful with the money now. And, and we've worked on a, a great partnership, actually came through the Rockefeller Foundation with a group called Impact Assets. And it is a donor advised fund and was uh, an investor in our most recent project as well. And I see that growing be for that reason, strategically, they play a critical role there, but also their their donors can support Blue Forest directly, and then we'll have more projects to put together and um, more things for them to invest in. So I think that's a virtuous cycle. And then I'd say the last bucket 
where there's been a lot of interest has been from family office groups or multifamily mm. offices. Right. I see this as one of those generational transformations. Um, if you want to live in California for the next 30 years, you're going to have to live with fire and a lot more people are going to be working in this space, right? Yeah. So fascinating listening to you talk there because it's just, you know, obviously, as you know, I lived in the States for 15 years and now I'm back in the UK. It's just such a deeper pool of diversified investment capital than it is in the UK. And it makes such a difference on these deals because there is such a need for that concessionary piece. I think that's true. But I would also say this, that over in Europe, uh, whether it's in the UK or Scandinavia, I mean, think about how far ahead many of the investors, especially the big institutional real money asset managers, pension plans, et cetera, are in terms of thinking about and evaluating sustainability, even without those concessional pools of capital, this will very naturally come across uh, the pond in that way because investors are going to be looking for this. I can't tell you how many investors from you know, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Scandinavia, not that they want to invest in Blue Forest or in the Forest Resilience Bond. They just want to hear what's going on and kind of understand from that perspective. And we love doing meetings like that because we learn so much from them. And just out of interest, are you able to share with us, like, what's like kind of the maximum ticket size for an investor within the Forest Resilience Bond loan structure? Um, yeah, so they haven't been big. The first the first project uh, was a $4 million financing to complete $4 million worth of project work. The second project, it's actually a set of projects put together that all benefit the same group. It's going to be about 25 to $30 million of project okay. work. And we did, yeah, it, it is great. It's bigger. It's still not big enough. We've recognized this. We've heard this from every investor. It's been a non-starter um, with a lot of other investors. So what we're going to do, kind of looking ahead at Blue Forest, is said, well, because these projects all look the same, we can aggregate all of these projects up into a single vehicle. Yeah. And I think sometimes folks that work in our space, whether it's climate finance or conservation finance, um, not the broader world of you know ESG and sustainable investing, we don't always think about what we're asking from investors when we're asking them to start due diligence with us on, again, relatively small opportunities. So I think what we'd like to do is, I don't want to call it a fund. Uh, necessarily it could be something that looks more like a conduit vehicle or something else, but a way that we could have a capital uh, vehicle that we could manage the liabilities of that with the investors being lenders to that and then deploying capital uh, down to the different projects. The other thing is um, the marketing period goes by too quickly on these. You know, By the time we're out marketing, we really need to get the money and close the transaction. And our marketing was probably mm-hmm. only open for like a month. And um, that's the other thing we're trying to get at with this, where we could bring deals in on a rolling basis. You could bring capital in on a rolling basis and sort of it would allow the structure to grow with us and with the project pipeline, Um, which is really exciting because now we're working with uh, about two dozen national forests with uh, five or six more projects ready to come online in the next two, three years. Uh, So really excited about that. Changing tack a bit to performance and measurement, because I think, you know, Everyone wants to know how do you how do you measure it? So the question on everyone's lips is probably how has the work stood up in terms of delivering these outcomes that were projected? How have wild wildfires impacted the projects or has it sort of stood up to those wildfires? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. And we actually put out an annual impact report 
each year. Um, it's required by our loan documents, not that we wouldn't do it anyway, but I think that kind of speaks to how we view our role as a, as a manager in this space, right? So we've adopted um, eight of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and there's 17 metrics um, that fall under those eight different categories that we report on. But I would encourage everybody to uh, go to our website and download the impact report. And we've done it the last two years. Our 2021 impact report will be out in about a month or two. Uh, and we love feedback on this also. So if you've seen someone that's doing this really well or doing it better, um, please share that with us. Uh, you know, you can always reach out to connect at blueforest.org uh, and share whatever thoughts you have. And we, we love to get that feedback. So that impact reporting is a really important piece for us. In terms of financial performance, um, the way it's worked so far is that each year we borrowed during that field season, which kind of runs June to November, um, and we've been able to repay investors in full by June of the next year before we start to borrow again. Right. Goodness, I have so many questions I want to ask you about, like capacity and jobs, so, but I, I know we're sort of running out of time. Um, I guess it's the first of its kind out there. What have you been surprised by? What were some of the key learnings you think uh, would be worth sharing with everyone? Yeah, so the one I, I say the most, and I say this to every employee that we bring on at Blue Forest too, is that we're not a science company, we're not an engineering company, we're not a finance company. We are in the relationship business. Mm -hmm. Building relationships and building trust is the most important thing we do at Blue Forest. Anytime we're in, in this world of dealing with money and public lands, that needs to be the most important thing. And I think one of the ways we did it, um, and especially for myself coming from a finance background, couple of things we don't always do well in finances, listen. So I think we try to do that with the Forest Service, but also we treated them the same way that we treat our investors or in some cases better, because there is only one Forest Service and there is only one national forest system land that we're working on. There are other investors out there. So if you can treat your stakeholders the same way you treat your investors, I think you're going to end up with much, much better outcomes uh, when everything is, is said and done. On the investor side, I've learned so much from our investors. And I think if you go into these things being like, yes, I have a background in sort of financial engineering and putting these kind of projects together, but I don't have a background in managing money, right? Don't think that um, it's a bad thing to be humble and, and talk to these investors and show this willingness to take that feedback because those are your best ideas. You couldn't pay enough to get feedback from investors as to what they want to do, right? So, yeah. so, so why not ask them and listen? And I think that's been um, a really, really big benefit for myself and sort of the fundraising team here at Blue Forest as we get to know uh, more and more investors. Ah, such great tips. Thank you so much. Um, before we sort of just wrap up and I want to hear about what we should be looking out for from you for the rest of this year, you know, the big question for the UK is, you know, fire risk is not uh, at present particularly high for the UK. Mm -hmm. Flood is our biggest issue. Do you see this model? And I know you appreciate it's a very different governance structures and, um, uh, and legal uh, differences between the US and the UK. Do you see this as something that could be translated, one, outside of the US, because um, Portugal obviously has very severe fires that they, they struggle with in Greece um, and Australia and many places, or do you see that you could expand it into areas other than fire, such as flood risk? Yeah, absolutely. And twist my arm to get me to go to Portugal, right? Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think so. So, so the way we look at this, and this was actually, again, it comes back to investors and funders teaching you things. If you're willing to listen, Rockefeller's first thing from day one was, it is great that you're using this financing mechanism to get at this fire problem because we understand that's huge. It's important. It ties into water and all these other things. But what they said was, anytime you have this proven environmental intervention, you should be able to use a mechanism like this, right? And it really got us thinking in that way. And we are going to launch some riparian restoration projects, which are going to be lower down um, in the watershed, likely not on federal mm-hmm. land from that perspective, where again, you could reduce fire risk. These oak woodlands areas, for example, can burn too. But what you're really trying to do is um, create more habitat. We've lost a lot of beavers uh, in the West and they do when they do their thing, they sequester a lot more carbon. They create a lot of great habitat. There's better water outcomes. But taking a step back to answer your question, Anytime you have a proven environmental intervention that requires a multi-stakeholder solution, not just a single layer of government or or private sector or whatever, that's where I think a model like this works well, because it gives you the flexibility to work with government if they have grant programs or otherwise directly with that group that's managing whatever the project is on the ground or contracting directly with the SPV if that works better for the stakeholders. Um, That flexibility to then be able to lend or grant money, I I think that will make sense in lots of other types of projects, but it depends on what the intervention was. I um, got to give a great talk over in Japan just before the uh, pandemic, uh, and they don't have a wildfire issue either, right? Flooding is a big issue, but it's largely because they've gone and built housing when their population was growing and now it's starting to decline in areas that there's not much you can do to keep flooding from happening there. There probably just shouldn't be homes in those areas, right? right? right. Um, and people could say the same thing about fire risk, but again, it's a really challenging political issue. So they wouldn't need a forest resilience bond or natural capital type solution because what's going to be the solution there is probably removing some of those homes or rezoning, or maybe there's a policy solution there. So if there is an intervention that can be done, I think this mechanism can work. But make sure you're considering sort of policy interventions and other things alongside of it, because anytime you have the public sector and finance happening, there's always going to be some overlap with policy, I think, as well. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I'm interested, you you mentioned the riparian work. There's a project up in Scotland that's sort of under development called Riverwoods, which is looking at riparian restoration along the enormous length of rivers in Scotland. So maybe you want to watch out for... And on that, um, I know that you are um, obviously looking to scale the forest resilience bond across North America, and you, you mentioned that earlier. Can you just tell us a bit about what to, what can we expect more um, to hear from you this year and, and some of that work that you're expanding into? Yeah, I think a couple of things. So you're going to hear more from us about what this proposed structure to aggregate a bunch of those projects might look like. And we're actually going to begin our research, our primary research, uh, engaging with investors to talk to them about structures they've seen that have worked well in their portfolio, um, share some ideas with them, get some feedback. So folks can feel free to reach out to me um, if they are investors and they'd like to be a part of some of this primary research. I think we're going to focus mainly on U.S. investors. But again, I want to make that kind of pitch that we've learned just as much, if not more, from European investors if they're willing to take the time, even if this isn't going to be an investment uh, for them right away. So that's something we're going to spend a lot of time on. What I hope you see is a lot more of the same. I want to do this again and again and again and again. I want to do it in the same watershed and I want to do it bigger the next time with the same partners and the same stakeholders and the same contracts and the same investors. That's how these things achieve scale. 
right? So yeah. if you ask me, what, what do you have to look forward to? Hopefully it's going to be boring. You're just going to see a whole lot more of the same <laughs> projects or slightly different types of projects that feel similar enough that they could fit into the same financing vehicles. And then when it really gets exciting is when we get to do field visits and get out and start to see some of these locations because they are dramatically different. And, and the, the type of work that needs to be done on the ground is has its differences. And it's really incredible to see that. But from a financing perspective, we want this to look similar. We want it to just be boring um, until we get out into the field, you know? Well, Zach, thank you so much for doing such amazing work. And it's such a pleasure to hear about it. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Helen. And I'm always, it's always a pleasure to nerd out. We do a lot of this um, on the Blue Forest team. So thanks for uh, indulging me a little bit and have a great rest of your day. Wow. There is a lot in there that I think could be so helpful to pick apart and see what could certainly be learned from uh, here in the UK, but also replicated. Um, uh, Also, entirely coincidentally, uh, Zach talked about legal structures like SPVs and aggregation vehicles. And we just very, very recently hosted a teach-in with the wonderful Dan Hurd, uh, James Mansfield and Steve Van Weeder on this topic. So if your nerd itch is still going, please do head over to the GFI Hive events page and look at past events for that video. Um, And of course, you'll also find the case study of the Forest Resilience Bond on the Hive website too. But that is all from us this week. Next week, we're heading to Singapore. Uh, Gabe Eikhoff at Lestari Capital will be joining us to talk about the great work they are doing in Indonesia, reducing biodiversity loss um, through supply chains, uh, working with some large corporates, and also developing carbon plus projects. We're going to talk about stacking and bundling. Um, It's going to be super interesting. So definitely uh, come join us there thank you again for listening and supporting us and a big thank you to our funders the esme fairben foundation and our financing nature editor robin lieburn of fairly media see you next week <laughs>